You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 15 of the series Spyclopedia Number 1, William Stevenson, Part 4, or World Radio University Listeners. Today I'm recording from Camp X in Whitby, Ontario. After VE Day in May 1945, when America had accepted Germany's unconditional surrender, the government planned to shut down the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. Wild Bill Donovan, feeling satisfied with his work, brought one of his secretaries over and said he wanted to read over the files. Which files, sir? she asked. All of them. Now that it's all over and I have a little time, I want to read everything. The secretary called the records department, which kept the reports from every OSS officer and overseas agent. After they looked into it and did some math, the records department called Wild Bill and told him if he read at a steady rate, eight hours a day, six days a week, the general could probably finish a cursory reading of every OSS report in about 16 and a half years. That's the irony with these intelligence agencies. They generate a vast, wide paper trail. Sure, you can burn papers showing the most damning, flagrant sins, but the general gist of things will be in bureaucratic paperwork until Judgment Day. There's a quirk of Mormon theology that talks about how every written word recorded by man will be used to assemble a book of life, the history of the entire world, in its entirety. And that journals, diaries, and all record-keeping are basically a sacred act, as they will eventually among other things, be used to indict the wicked. Now, I cannot imagine the volumes upon volumes of records that the OSS kept, and neither can you, because they're sealed up and kept from public inspection. Maybe one day we'll be able to read them. In the meantime, let's make do and get back to the story. The special operations executive, the British Wartime Espionage Espionage Organization, had its headquarters on Baker Street, in London, you know, like Sherlock Holmes, because the British are always so goddamn twee about everything. They even called themselves the Baker Street Irregulars, just like Sherlock's secret team of child street urchins. Now, we've been jumping around, but we might as well nail down some dates here for Wild Bill Donovan. He was appointed Coordinator of Information in June 1941. The COI, the Coordinator coordinator of Information, or COI, was the direct predecessor to the OSS. So that was started in June 1941, and when they started that, it made William Stevenson say, and on that night I took five instead of four hours sleep. Then, in June 1942, they set up the OSS and made Donovan director. At the time, various wags and jesters in high society called it oh-so-social. They also called it oh-shush-shush and oh-so-secret, which they called at the time because everybody knew that it existed because it mainly recruited from upper-class Americans. When Donovan was running COI and OSS, he too was basically making an intelligence agency from scratch. And he relied on Stevenson's British security coordination for support, training, early intelligence sharing, 
and honestly Stevenson fed him some wins to get institutional clout. Now, with the OSS, we see a learning curve and a lag between when they started and when they were fully operational. We don't see that for the British Security Coordination, leading me to believe that Stevenson had been spying before and possibly that there was already a spy network in the United States. But I digress. Wild Bill Donovan brought two of his close associates in with him when the OSS really got going. Colonel Edward Buxton, a news publisher from Rhode Island. Donovan and Buxton had fought together in World War I, and they both went on to found, along with many others, the American Legion. Donovan also brought in James Murphy, who was his law clerk when Donovan was assistant attorney general. James Murphy said the only reason he was there was to keep the knives out of Donovan's back. Which, let's not forget, that is not always a metaphor in the intelligence world. After the U.S. entered World War II, and I might have said this in prior episodes, Hoover's FBI lost their exclusive liaison with British Security Coordination. And British Security Coordination naturally started to work more and more with the OSS though of course they still maintained close ties with the FBI. In 1941, the FBI received from Stevenson's staff no less than 100,000 reports, so they were still working hand-in-hand. Now, all all COI officers were at first trained at the British Security Coordination Camp in Canada, called Camp X in Whitby, Ontario, near Toronto. The OSS eventually made their own training camps using Camp X as a model. And the OSS had camps in a couple locations, but finally settling on the infamous Camp Peary, also known as The Farm, out there in Virginia, which now trains the CIA and DIA. In the early days, the COI and OSS camps were fond of using British security coordination instructors. The most famous instructors, to the public anyway, would be Fairbairn and Sykes. Now, these two men, I guess you could call them martial artists, because they wrote a number of books on knives, guns, and hand-to-hand combat. Stevenson's British security coordination wanted and needed to spread pro-British propaganda in the United States. But unlike with newspapers, which Stevenson could juice by sharing intelligence, most radio station owners were unwilling to cooperate for whatever reasons, and the State Department could not compel them to do so. The obvious answer, to Stevenson anyway, was to infiltrate certain existing radio stations. Some of these stations occupied a very curious place in the history of radio in the United States. And don't forget... Radio was one of the main things that Stevenson made his fortune on in the UK. So he was a radio man through and through. So of the two stations that Stevenson was most involved with in the United States, one station broadcast to Europe and the other broadcast to the Far East. Stevenson called them the foundation for all American shortwave radio propaganda. The two stations that Stevenson controlled were Boston's WRUL and San Francisco's K-G-E-I, and it's probably worth dwelling on both of them for a minute. So W-R-U-L stood for World Radio University Listeners. It was started by Walter Lemon, 
who was a radio inventor. In 1935, it began as a nonprofit transmitting educational and commercial programs. It was ideal for, for the British security coordination because it already had a worldwide audience because it had a high power transmitter. It could be picked up in Europe. The British security coordination began to subsidize the station and WRUL started to cooperate. Stevenson recruited foreign news editors, translators, and announcers for WRUL. The BSC wrote their news bulletins, prepared scripts, talks, and programs. The radio station itself was quickly absorbed into the British Security Coordination organization, more or less outright. WRUL would broadcast in 22 languages, including Armenian, Iraqi, Senegalese, and Serbo-Croat. After Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entry into World War II, Stevenson handed WRUL's operations over to Wild Bill Donovan. Later on, WRUL became WNYW, and later on it was purchased by various media companies, including at one point the Mormon Church's media company. Then later it was shut down and moved to Florida, and eventually it was shut down altogether. The other radio station, KGEI, was owned and operated by General Electric. Stevenson apparently got control of KGEI through a deal with General Electric and the Malaya Broadcasting Corporation. Apparently, they exchanged control of the station for rebroadcasting rights in Singapore. As part of the deal, Stevenson's propaganda would be broadcast in Singapore and Australia. This takeover was a double whammy since prior to World War II, KGEI was an isolationist station, and it would frequently air speeches by Charles Lindbergh and the International News Service, which was William Randolph Hearst's company. Therefore, of course, it was isolationist and pro-Nazi. This takeover, of course, took away that voice for the isolationists. Later on, KGEI was associated with Voice of America, another vehicle for U.S. propaganda during the Cold War. These cases are obvious predecessors, are obvious and direct predecessors to Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, and Voice of America, and so on. Along the same lines, if you've ever had suspicions about certain podcasts, especially on the left, but ever thought, no, I am being too paranoid, just remember, that British intelligence literally ran, recruited, and funded entire radio stations and carefully crafted all of the content therein, and that U.S. intelligence took the, these radio stations over and kept up these types of operations. The idea that they just stopped doing that when it was obviously so effective is pretty credulous, especially when podcasts lower the bar to entry even further. Like I mentioned, in June 1942, the president abolished COI and established two agencies, and we usually only ever talk about one of the two, the OSS. However, FDR's executive order created two agencies, the OSS and the OWI. The OWI was the Office of War Information. Why, what did the Office of War Information do? Among other things, the Office of War Information oversaw all overseas propaganda, except black propaganda, that is also to say covert propaganda. 
which the OSS was in charge of. While Donovan was made director of OSS, a man named Elmer Davis was made director of the OWI. Elmer Davis was, get this, a Rhodes Scholar, a former New York Times reporter, and one of the top radio reporters for CBS at the time of his appointment. For what it's worth, he was also a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, the Literary Society, not the Special Operations Executive. Though not, not if you get what I'm saying. As if the Rhodes Scholar thing wasn't enough to cement Davis in the constellation of Anglo-American intelligence royalty. So apparently the OSS did not want the existence of the OWI, and the split was said to be acrimonious. But the OSS didn't like it because it even slightly clipped their power, so splitting these two functions was probably a good idea. I would like to research the OWI much more to get a better understanding of all this, but that's perhaps for a future date. For now, though, I would just like to read what H. Hyde Montgomery had to say about propaganda in the United States. He said, A country that is extremely heterogeneous in character offers a wide variety of choice and propaganda methods. While it is possibly true to say that most Americans are intensely suspicious of propaganda, it is certain that a great many of them are remarkably susceptible to it, even in its most patent and blatant form. Good thing that's not still a problem today. Moving on. Now that the OSS and Special Operations Executive and British Security Coordination were all pretty much fully operational in those early days, the dynamic was pretty much one where the British had existing networks and know-how, and the United States had the money. And that was pretty much the dynamic for World War II and much of the early Cold War. For example, all over the world, secret operations required hard cash and foreign currency. And it's pretty hard to get that secretly, right? Like, you don't want to see your secret agents walking out of a bank with bags of cash and so on. So, to deal with this problem, in one case, the U.S. Treasury, the Bankers Trust Company, British Security Coordination, and the OSS bought 2 million Portuguese escudos, and they hid the transaction by buying the currency from a Portuguese shipping magnate. Ding, 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 shipping magnates throughout the world are always in bed with intelligence. It's probably one of the spookiest professions up there with magician, international astrologer, passport officer, tobacco exporter, and so on. By Stevenson's reckoning, the U.S. sent at least 30 million in cash to the United Kingdom to be used for black operations in Europe. From the U.S. to the U.K., they didn't need secret channels, just bags and bags and bags of cash on a boat. I have mentioned the dangers of reading the accounts of spies written by the spies themselves. There is a lesser danger of reading the histories of these spies written by their friendly historians. The real sweet spot, ironically, is in reading the account of one spy writing about another spy who is on their side yet something of a competitor. I posit to you, dear listener, that that is when spies end up telling a higher, higher ratio of truth than at any other time. Think about it. Spies have an interest in lying about their own adventures and accomplishments to aggrandize themselves. They will lie about their enemies to make their own good and bad deeds seem necessary. They will lie about their friends, usually to cover up 
any faults or errors, but I think that the time a spy tells the most truth is when they need to convey why their colleague is not as cool as you, the reader, might think, usually with the implication that they are more competent, and so on. This is true of H. Montgomery Hyde's book, Room 3603. I have encountered at least several outright lies and more than a few major sins of omission. The basic information is still good, so I can't help but read and use it as a source, right? But when they talk about Alan Dulles, head of the OSS in Bern, Switzerland, during this wartime period, you can tell in that dry British way that Hyde does not think very much of him, at least as a spy. Couched in a paragraph talking about the really good, high-quality intelligence the OSS was gathering, and introducing Dulles in Bern, Switzerland, Hyde says, quote, To his office one night in 1943, there came a man known as George Wood, who was an important employee in the German Foreign Office in Berlin. During the next 18 months, Wood brought with him nearly 2,000 microfilm photographs of top-secret German diplomatic correspondence between the German Foreign Office and 20 different countries, unquote. Now, George Wood was the codename for Fritz Kolbe, a German diplomat who Alan Dulles considered somewhat naive and a romantic idealist. Alan Dulles viewed him as expendable. In reality, at least, I guess I'm editorializing here, but in reality it seems to me like Colby was something of a hero, actually. He refused to accept payment for the information he passed along, and he said, My aim was to help shorten the war for my unfortunate countrymen and to help concentration camp inmates avoid further suffering. Colby didn't just provide 2,000 pieces of microfilm, he also provided intelligence on where the Germans thought D-Day would land. He provided intelligence on the V-1 and V-2 and V-2 rockets. He provided intelligence on the Messerschmitt jet fighters on Japanese plans in the in Southeast Asia. He even uncovered an Axis spy in the British embassy in Turkey. I can't believe this. This is like intelligence shit. I'm not comfortable with this. This is like like. I can't believe this shit I'm seeing. Manolo found it. On the floor there? Yeah. Manolo found, like, this CD just lying in a locker. Locker floor, ladies' locker. Just and lying I'm there? I'm like, what, someone's music or what? And I come in here, and it's these files, man. I'm not comfortable with this. Talking about sig int and signals and shit, and which signals means code, you know? It was just lying there. Talking here about department heads and their names and shit. And then there's these other files that are just, like, numbers arrayed. Numbers and dates and numbers and numbers and dates and numbers and... I think that's the shit, man. The raw intelligence. This is all pretty wild stuff, right? Yet, if you read, heaven forbid, pro-Dulles biographies, or even left-of-center ones like Talbot's Devil's Chessboard or The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer, you walk away with the impression that Alan Dulles was actually a spymaster. But if you listen to Hyde's version, which is backed up by the facts, and by other books as well, Fritz Colby approached Alan Dulles. Colby would have given this extremely valuable information to anyone in that office. It had nothing to do with Alan Dulles. And it's Colby's intelligence that made Alan Dulles' career. This is like the intelligence agency equivalent of being given an oil field and becoming a successful oil baron. 
Only on Program to Chill can you get the take that Alan Dulles is the Beverly Hillbillies of spies. Now, this is the value in reading books written by spies. Even if it's exhausting to be constantly lied to, you can learn so much, as long as you have the Angleton mindset. After the war, William Stevenson met, met Alan Dulles and said, George Wood and his intelligence was one of the greatest achievements of the war. And William Stevenson wrote a letter of commendation to Alan Dulles. This letter, of course, was helpful in getting the CIA created and in getting Alan Dulles eventually placed in charge of it. Things worked out for Alan Dulles. But what happened to Fritz Colby? Colby tried to settle in the United States but could not find good work and returned to Germany where he was treated like a leper. That's the program to chill lesson for today. There is no justice in this world, and being a Fritz Kolbe or a whistleblower might save your soul, but it can basically ruin your life. Your only consolation is moral superiority. This can be worth a lot, but it's worth maybe less than some people realize going into it. I'm not saying no, don't oppose the Nazis at great personal expense. Or, no, don't whistle blow on X, Y, or Z. I'm just saying, know what you're getting into before you do it. Because, just like they say, the wealthiest person is a pauper at times, compared to the man with the satisfied mind. Sometimes, accounts of the CIA by the aforementioned left-of-center critics like Stephen Kinzer or David Talbot, and others, they will sometimes, believe it or not, engage in a type of historical revisionism. They like to point out that President Truman terminated the OSS and didn't create the CIA until two years later under various pressures. For what it's worth, William Stevenson and H. Montgomery Hyde were both pretty sure that had Franklin Delano Roosevelt lived to complete his fourth term in the White House, he would have probably not dissolved the OSS, and he probably would have created the CIA even sooner. Now, that's a fact that sometimes gets lost in these soft left critiques of the CIA. It can be ahistorical. Now, William Stevenson's track record for forecasting certain events became pretty good. For instance, he had reliable contacts inside the Japanese embassy in Washington, as well as in the Japanese consulates in New York and San Francisco. Their reports were quite clear, corroborated by outside sources that several months before Pearl Harbor, it was certain that the militarists in Tokyo were going to declare war. One incident in particular was basically as close to a smoking gun as you could possibly get. In preparation for war, Japan transferred their espionage headquarters for the Western Hemisphere from the United States to Argentina, something that would only make sense if war was impending. Stevenson had a source inside the Argentine Foreign Ministry. This source fingered two Japanese diplomats already en route to Argentina as espionage agents. Stevenson contrived for these two Japanese agents to be kicked off the boat and then arrested in Trinidad, where they were photographed, fingerprinted, and their bags examined. Wouldn't you know it, they were carrying a number of U.S. and British technical publications, as well as maps of U.S. and British naval bases, lists of contacts, and about $65,000 in cash. They were both eventually sent to Canada, then deported. Stevenson's people were closely monitoring the Japanese special envoy to the U.S., who was busy 
trying to either get the United States to accept Japanese designs in the Pacific, kind of a long shot, or else to lure the United States into a false sense of security. Through other sources, Stevenson found out early that the negotiations were dead in the water. Stevenson telegraphed FDR on November 27, 1941, which read, Japanese negotiations off. Expect action within two weeks. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese launched their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, well within the two weeks that Stevenson predicted. William Stevenson, as well as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, knew that Japan was going to attack the United States, if not their precise plans. Now, Stevenson was also able to provide London with reliable forecasts of events like the outcome of the U.S. presidential elections in 1940 and 1944, which they predicted with remarkable accuracy. Stevenson also knew, and reported to London, that Roosevelt was going to dump Henry Wallace from the ticket as VP five whole months before Henry Wallace knew it himself. Although less important, Stevenson also knew ahead of time that Fiorello LaGuardia would not run again for mayor, and that the next New York City mayor would be William O'Dwyer. Stevenson knew that Truman would beat Dewey in the 1944 race, where most people predicted Dewey would win. A lot of people have seen that famous picture of Truman smiling and holding up the newspaper saying, Dewey defeats Truman. How did Stevenson predict these elections so accurately? He had David Ogilvy, a Scot, and Ogilvy lived a pretty crazy interesting life. Ogilvy attended St. Cyprian's in Oxford on scholarship because he was from a poor family. Ogilvy also worked as a chef at the Hotel Majestic in Paris. Apparently he sold cooking stoves door-to-door -door in Scotland for a time, and he eventually became an advertising executive. As an advertising executive, they sent him to work with George Gallup's Audience Research Institute, the predecessor to the modern-day Gallup polling company. While he was there, Ogilvy became Gallup's right-hand man for a time. During World War II, he was recruited by Stevenson's British Security Coordination. He went to Camp X and learned throat slitting, but Stevenson pretty much used him for advertising work, a lot of conceptual stuff. He was Stevenson's go-to expert on American public opinion. So, Ogilvy conducted many polls about American public opinions on Britain and the war, and it helped them quantify some of their achievements in the field of public opinion, especially as they waged war on the isolationists. And, as a side note, of course, if your job is to sway U.S. public opinion, whether or not you're actually doing that, you will show that public opinion has been swayed by your efforts. That's one of the examples of a thing that spies would lie to their own bosses about the efficacy of their work. Now, Stevenson and his people wrote up a report entitled Fifth Column Propaganda of the Access in the United States. This summarized all the different tricks the isolationists were using and it highlighted when and how the Germans were dictating much of it through the previously mentioned George Vierick and other Nazi propagandists. It showed how the same themes were used again and again, implying a consistent propaganda policy guided by Nazis. They gave this report to FDR and his brain trust, and they made great use of it in speeches and other media. Then they gave the report to various newspapers, especially, you guessed it, the New York Herald Tribune. 
Now, this report, and especially when it was used by FDR and the press, this mobilized public opinion pretty effectively, which Stevenson and FDR were monitoring with the Gallup polls. Then, FDR banned many of the worst offenders of Nazi propaganda from sending their materials through the mail. They banned Father Coughlin's periodical, Social Justice. They banned William Dudley Pelley's The Galilean, X-Ray and Publicity. And all of these publishers, with the exception of Father Coughlin's, to avoid upsetting the Catholic vote, were all of these publishers were arrested and 33 of them were indicted at the largest treason trial in American history. Or should I say, largest treason trial in the United States so far. Wink. Squashing the isolationist publishers had direct quantifiable effects on U.S. public opinions about the war, and on Britain. In just one month after they banned those publishers, public approval of Britain went up 15%, for example. Now, here is a hilariously chilling passage from Room 3603. Quote, His knowledge of Gallup's polls led David Ogilvie to the conclusion that a poll, if secretly organized in other countries, could assist in settling many political and ethnological problems without the confusion and possible corruption of a plebiscite. Also, to determine what types of Allied propaganda would be most effective. By the same means, it would have been possible to assess the true strength of such political movements as the Integralists in Brazil or Sir Oswald Mosley's fascist black shirts in Great Britain. Unquote. Truly, the worst outcome would be to solve a political or ethnological problem with a plebiscite, causing confusion and corruption. It's the most aristocratic sentiment I have ever heard written down in public, I swear. And while the stated examples involve fighting off fascism, as we've discussed in prior episodes, polling could just as easily be used to, you know, support those movements, or be mobilized against communism, or even social democracy. Take your pick. Anyway, this was not a theoretical thing, like, ah, I bet we could do this. These ideas were written down in a report called A Plan for Predetermining the Results of Plebiscites, Predicting the Reactions of People to the Impact of Projected Events, and Applying Gallup Technique to Other Fields of Secret Intelligence. This was written by David Ogilvie and forwarded by William Stevenson to London in August 1943. They also sent the report along to Washington, D.C., Supposedly, it was received without enthusiasm, at least at first, but a year later, the Psychological Warfare Board of General Eisenhower's headquarters staff successfully carried out polls in Europe in the manner advocated by Ogilvie and endorsed by William Stevenson, and they have been using these techniques ever since. Now, on Twitter, I have posted about the Italian elections in 1948. You can look it up, too. There are lots of books that talk about it. But basically, the CIA poured literally tons of gold into the coffers of the Christian Democratic Party to keep Italy from going red, right? They pulled similar operations in Japan. Like, they pretty much invented the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan and completely funded it. But the gold and the bribery also obscures the fact that they were using sophisticated polling techniques to carry out psychological warfare. Now, I would love to research 
about the U.S. doing psychological warfare using polling techniques at this point. I'm going to have to put a note down to research it in the future. But we'll have to content ourselves with the note that right from the beginning, intelligence agencies were using the Gallup Polling Company, which is notable. So, what lessons can we draw on today? For one thing, all these spy agencies create massive paper trails. The volume alone can drown out a lot of criticism, but there's still enough proof to send many of them to prison, theoretically, so they don't let the public see these documents for decades and decades, if ever. Then we saw how British intelligence funded, hired, operated, and wrote content for major international radio stations, including a non-profit, and they handed the operations over to United States intelligence. We learned about not only the OSS, but the OWI, which was in charge of propaganda. And it's worth repeating that these British agents believed us in the United States to be remarkably susceptible to propaganda, even in its most patent and blatant form. Then we saw how the United States was initially the junior partner in the espionage coalition, basically buying our way into the great game. Also, Stevenson and Hyde softly threw shade on Alan Dulles, who was basically a success due to his position, not due to his skills and abilities. Also, in relation to that, let's remember, if you are going to be a whistleblower, just remember it might literally ruin your life. Then we learned that Stevenson and Roosevelt both knew that there was an impending attack an impending attack by Japan. So in a very real sense, they did know Pearl Harbor was about to happen, if not the specifics. I'm not going to get bogged down too much about the implications there, but I think you can sort of draw some conclusions because Pearl Harbor was very politically useful to FDR. That's all I'll say. Then, like we just talked about, we learned how Gallup polling was used for psychological warfare. And mind you, think about what that term entails. I did not mention, but David Ogilvie went on to become known as the father of advertising. Now, I know they say that I've seen a couple people listed as the father of advertising, but he was indisputably very important. He ended up running the successful New York City advertising firm of Ogilvie and Mather. Because, not to get all ad busters on you, but advertising is psychological warfare too. Now, I didn't expect to do this many episodes on William Stevenson, but it's there's just so many facets and so many interesting detours to talk about. I think we are near the end, though, on William Stevenson. Maybe one or two episodes. Everything is so interesting, folks. There's always something to talk about. Now, regarding sources today, still Room 3603 and Agents of Influence, also Spartacus Educational Website. I also utilized the book The Devil's Chessboard by Talbot and The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer, as well as the book Disciples. Thank you again for listening, dear listener. Also, I just started a Patreon, so check me out there if you want additional episodes. The plan is to keep doing the same type of thing on the free side, and on Patreon I'm going to do a little bit more freestyle, maybe more one-off episodes, and things that don't fit the normal show. So, if you like this stuff, check it out. Now, I need to be on my way. I'm heading to Chateau de Castelnau. See you next week, and God bless.